Fox. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's May 14th, 2020. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. Today is your last day to put your ballot in the mailbox. Remember, there is no postage required. Thank you for that, democracy. Today, back in the day, on May 14th, 1643, Louis XIV became the king of France at age four. No more monarchy, please. And today, back in the day, May 14th, 1804, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark's expedition, commissioned by Thomas Jefferson, set out from St. Louis for the Pacific Coast. And today, back in the day, May 14th, 1878, the last witchcraft trial held in the United States began in Salem, Massachusetts. After Lucretia Brown, an adherent of Christian science, accused Daniel Spofford of trying to harm her using his mental powers. And today on The Local, your quick six headlines, a focus on restaurant impact with Jeremiah Smith from C-Bar and an interview with Rob Fulmer, candidate for House District 36. First up, today's quick six local rundown. Money, 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 money. The big story remains the state budget. Governor Kate Brown telling Oregon state agencies to prepare for 17% budget cuts. After a boom year in Oregon, with unemployment rates in March at record lows, and last year with the state having a $1.5 billion surplus, the pandemic and subsequent lockdown has changed everything. Remember that Oregon has a constitutional requirement to balance the budget every year. That means we can't end the year in debt. There hasn't been a special session called... But here's one person predicting there will be one. The governor has the power to call a special session. The governor then has to name a specific purpose, and the session has to focus on that purpose. It can be somewhat broad of a purpose that the governor calls. The legislature can also call a special session, and if it does so, it can have a much broader purpose, or at least one that is not specifically stated. Portland's publicly funded campaigns are costing the city about $2 million. The fund now has about a million dollars on hand, but anticipates close to full funding in the upcoming fiscal year budget City Hall is currently writing. If all four city council races end up in runoffs and must be settled in the general election, the maximum cost for the November ballot would be just under $2 million because publicly funded candidates must abide by spending caps. The Open and Accountable Elections Director said... And I'm quoting, I've been telling people that we would walk out of this first cycle with some really good data to use to extrapolate future election costs. But the coronavirus really changed that. It's going to be some weird data. Candidate for Mayor Sarah Iannarone and Council Candidate Carmen Rubio both hit their fundraising limits for the primary, while other office seekers have reported donations that haven't been matched yet. Some contributions aren't eligible for a primary match because they were made after the April 28th deadline. And a reminder, mail in your ballot today. Your daily dose of data as Wednesday, Oregon has 3,416 confirmed COVID cases and 134 deaths. Four new deaths tragically reported on Wednesday. We've now tested 84,000 people. There are currently 53 people in the hospital with confirmed cases of COVID, another 109 suspected patients in the hospital. Good news is right now there are plenty of hospital beds and ventilators available, so well done, Oregon. That didn't mean go out and go crazy, just a pat on the back for all the good efforts at flattening the curve. Meanwhile, wah, wah, more fun is canceled. Portland Parks are announcing that swimming pools will not open this summer. The summer camps and art centers will also remain closed. Previously announced cancellations include concerts in the park, movies in the park, the Washington Park Summer Festival, and the Portland World Soccer Tournament. Parking lots in most parks are closed too. But parks, nature trails, nature areas, golf courses do remain open. Again, keep your distance. And the Hood to Coast announced on Wednesday that the annual relay race will be canceled. 
Hood to Coast Relay sent it a statement. Although Governor Brown has announced phase reopening guidelines, she also stated large-scale sporting events would not take place sooner than October. The annual race is sold out for 22 consecutive years. Teams enter via lottery selection. Teams who have registered for this year's relays set to take place in August while their registration transferred to the 2021 race and skip the lottery selection process. Some music news. Waterfront Blues Festival, one of the first big music events in Oregon to call it for the summer in 2020. When they did so, they offered all ticket holders a valid ticket for the 2021 festival, vowed to try to recreate as much of the lineup as they can. As we learned earlier, Pickathon is the latest festival to admit defeat. And the sold-out music festival has lived to see another day, at least in court. Last year, the Portland promoters filed a lawsuit against the Coachella promoter Golden Voice, claiming the festival contracts violated antitrust laws. Coachella contracts stipulate that an artist booked at the festival cannot perform at any other North American festival between December 15th to May 1st. That's like half the year. Sold out claim this clause denied performers the ability to appear at the Portland Festival and therefore violated the law. On Tuesday, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals dismissed a lower court ruling and ruled that sold out production satisfied requirements for standing. The panel concluded sold out should be able to move forward on its claims, sending the case back to district court. So we may end up getting a ruling on the merits. Stay tuned for that. In other lawsuit news, State Representative Diego Hernandez is suing Speaker of the House Tina Kotek and the legislature. An investigative process set in motion May 4th by the House Committee on Conduct, which received a complaint against Hernandez of sexual harassment. Members of that committee are appointed by Speaker Kotek. Two interim steps were taken, barring contact with women involved in the complaint and giving 24-hour notice before Diego Hernandez could enter the now-closed Capitol building. Hernandez did take a leave of absence earlier this year from his legislative duties, but that leave has ended, and now Hernandez suggests that this is political payback. Andrea Valderrama, chair of the David Douglas School Board, filed for a restraining order against Hernandez on March 3rd based on a 2019 incident alleging violent behavior. They apparently lived together at the time. She withdrew her request on March 25th. Valderrama said she no longer feared for her safety, and a Multnomah County judge dismissed it the next day without issuing an order. Diego Hernandez is unopposed in the May 19th primary for renomination to a third term. He currently has no committee assignments. Those assignments are made by Speaker Kotek. And if you live in Old Town in northwest Portland, you might start seeing more police officers. The Portland Police Bureau started ramping up patrols in Old Town in the Pearl District on Wednesday in an effort to increase public safety in the area. Residents have reported a substantial increase in the fear of violence because of the aggressive nature of some individuals in the area. They've also reported witnessing drug transactions out in the open, as well as threats of violence and petty crime. Police Bureau is putting an emphasis on being highly visible in uniform in an effort to curtail crime. That's one tool police officers have now they never had before, which is social media, posting and saying, hey, we're here, watch out. Perhaps now we get more reports in Old Town like those recent entries from PDX Alert such as these reported new seasons, man vandalized the floral department, then dancing in traffic. Or this one, police to Velmore Apartments, caller reports a male who goes by Batman having sex with a woman in the courtyard. And this one, three chihuahuas running amok on North Killingsworth. Thank you, PDX Alerts. And the land of French fries and haircuts, all but three Oregon counties have now applied to partially reopen. It's only the metro area that has not submitted applications. Washington, Multnomah, and Clackamas counties. 33 Oregon counties have now submitted. Some counties will begin to reopen as soon as tomorrow. Official decisions on the green light has not happened yet. Restaurants, bars, gyms, and salons are among the businesses slated to reopen. We're not suggesting here that if you need a haircut, you go over to M. Hill County or down to Salem. And it's not only the day to mail in your ballot, it's also the great potato giveaway of 2020. Farmers in Washington are giving away more than 200,000 pounds of potatoes that otherwise go to waste. 
They were meant to be sold to restaurants and other food service establishments, but those are closed. The giveaway is today at the Tacoma Dome G and F parking lots. The potatoes, you might say potatoes, are being given out on a first-come, first-served basis. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Reminder, X-Ray FM is offering free radio spots to businesses and organizations in need from the coronavirus. Submit to the local at xray.fm. Here's Emily Gilliland with What's Next. Thanks, Jefferson. First up, a focus on restaurant impacts from COVID-19. Jeremiah Smith, owner of Sea Bar in Southeast, checks in to share their story of community. Sea Bar used to be the spot for happy hour food and drinks, brunch, pinball, and all things community. Sea Bar is still serving up food at their walk-up window, but the community is definitely missing from the bar since restaurants have had to close their dining spaces. To tell us more about Sea Bar and owning a bar during COVID-19, we have the owner, Jeremiah, Jeremiah Smith, with us to tell us more. Thanks for joining us, Jeremiah. Hey, how's it going? Good. How's it going with you? <laughs> well, we've had better days, <laughs> but we're still holding on, you know, holding on by a thread. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about Sea Bar and your story with the restaurant. Sort of what is its origin story? Um, so Sea Bar has actually been there 18 years. Um, started off as a little coffee shop, and it's kind of organically grown as the neighborhood's grown throughout the years. Um, and actually this April, we celebrated the 18-year anniversary and my 10-year anniversary being there. Mm. So, of course, we didn't have a big party like we planned, but, um, yeah, it's kind of been a, a little community bar here in uh, southeast Portland for, yeah, 18 years and still kind of hanging on there. And as the government has activated different supports like the PPP loans, the payroll potential, protection uh, program have any of those been resources that y'all have been able to access haven't seen haven't heard or seen one <clears throat> one cent yeah. <laughs> applied for everything um i have i applied for uh unemployment now that you know uh, owners can i haven't heard anything back even some of my employees are still waiting for unemployment um the uh, Six hundred dollars, you know, the cares that's going to other employees. Mm-hmm. Um, some of my employees are getting that, and they're just like, "No, we're fine." You know, we're actually making more money because they're making an extra, you know, six hundred dollars a week on top of their unemployment. Mm-hmm. And it's like, "No, we don't want to come back. Like, we're okay right now." Mm-hmm. And so, as as the new reopening structures are starting to become a little bit clearer, is is it? Are the next steps feasible for a restaurant like Sea Bar, meaning the pieces like closing or last call at 10 o'clock, continuing the social distancing within a restaurant environment? Is that financially viable for Sea Bar? It's going to be an extreme struggle. Um, we talked about, or I've talked to my chef about opening up earlier. Maybe we're going to open up for breakfast also. Mm-hmm. Um, Y'all but, have a, uh, an amazing brunch. That I would vote for that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, but just mapping out, like going through the guidelines, um, like I have nine tables around the outside of my, uh, the, the main dining room. I'm going to have mm-hmm. to drop that down to three to make sure that everything is, you know, following these guidelines. In the center tables, I can't use that big farmhouse table because it's too close to other tables. Um, the bar seating we can't use. So I go from a dining room from, you know, let's see, 9, 10, 11, 
nine tables plus two large ones down to three yeah. and it's it's hurting um and then luckily we have some tables outside and then the back patio but even that's not going to be feasible and looking at you know bringing people back i can't bring all my employees back because it's too tight quarters so i have 19 employees i can maybe only bring maybe nine to ten of them back Mm. Mm. where are you finding hope right now what's keeping you going (laughs) um i think just the smiles when people walk by and we're still you know i'm still there like doing projects or you know trying to doing small projects um um, but then you know and the love that when people send me messages or send me an email or text or over social media that you know, oh, thanks. That meal was great. We just miss you. We just, you know, we're holding on. And, um, but yeah, just kind of the the love of the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. How how have the other restaurants on the street there? Yoko's and there's a coffee shop there. Are are, the, are you all in communication as folks in similar situations? Yeah, uh, Rocio and I have been in good communication. Carrie down the street at Unicorn Bake Shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and we started a, or um, Alex over Imperial started up a Portland uh, service industry group on Facebook. So we've all been communicating there. Um, so there's been a lot of good communication going on. And we're trying to figure out, you know, as we can open up, you know, do we, like, Seabar's always been about a great place where people kind of hop around and you don't really sit at one table. Mm-hmm. You know, you see friends, you go up and stand up at the bar, you go play a pinball machine, you go out to the patio. So it's kind of, it's going to hurt that I think kind of the new business model until this clears up is we might have to take reservations at like a certain, you know, maybe 90 hour, or 90 minute increment, huh. which is going to be completely different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seabar is a place where you can just always just sort of stop in and, and you all are there for folks. So, yeah, that would be very different. Uh, yeah, but, I mean, dining out is going to be completely yeah. different until we can, you know, get a cure for this or, you know, kind of crush it and mm-hmm. put the brakes on it. Tell us about your walk-up window again. Um, so, basically, right now I just have the front blocked off. So, it's mm-hmm. just that little about four-by-four four, um Thanks. And um, right now I'm just advertising everything on Instagram and Facebook because I'm taking all the orders. I'm getting uh, online ordering set up. Um, but yeah, we're just, I'm just trying to, you know, keep in, the, keep in people's minds and then kind of give a little bit back to, to what we can. And, um, last week I had a couple extra lasagna, so I just walked around and gave them to my neighbors. And um, But yeah, just trying to keep my face out there <laughs> yeah absolutely so for for folks who are interested go to facebook or instagram look for c-bar and what's what are you going to be offering this week uh this week might be doing uh our burgers and veggie burgers and uh uh buffalo wings ah all right that sounds delicious um, okay well jeremiah again c-bar folks should go to facebook or instagram Okay, excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Congratulations on that 10-year anniversary, and best of luck. Yeah, thank you. Stay healthy. Thanks, you too.
Again, that was Jeremiah Smith, owner of Sea Bar in Portland. It is in Southeast. You can find out more on Facebook or Instagram. Again, that's Sea Bar. They're still open via their walk-up window. Rob Fulmer, candidate for House District 36, talked with Jefferson Smith on May Day about working for labor, the higher education landscape, and revenue ideas for Oregon. Rob is our second House District 36 candidate on the local. Tomorrow, we'll include an interview with Lori Wimmer. You can find all of our candidate interviews, 60 of them, on xraypod.com or on your favorite podcast platform. District 36, let's talk to about where that is. It's downtown Portland, swaths of northwest and southwest Portland. This is Jennifer Williamson's old district. The position is now open because she was running for Secretary of State. Rob Fulmer, how are you doing this morning? Excellent. How are you, sir? I'm holding up. Who are you and why are you running? But my story is uh, I was brought up by a single mom who really struggled to support me and my brother on her own. I went to 10 different public schools in three states before I got out of high school. I figured out about the second or third school in the library is a safe space. I spent a lot of time in libraries and across those 10 schools. Uh, I read a lot of books. I uh, got into a great university. And I realized just how important public education is in in providing an opportunity for people to better themselves and and make better lives. And I've dedicated my career to working in education. So I spent my entire career working in education. I've been a labor leader and an activist in in my union, SEIU 503, for for many years now. Uh, And I've done a lot uh, for labor, but I'm a labor and education guy. Uh, I'm an environmental guy. And uh, and I'm someone who's really been active in in my neighborhood, and I'll get into more of that later. But that's that's who I am, and why I'm running is we haven't had a, a really strong labor uh, and and education champion in the legislature. But uh, specifically when it comes to higher education, we need a a labor leader uh, and an, uh, someone who really cares about higher education in in Salem in the worst way. We need someone to defend it and someone to expand funding for it to lead that fight. I want to be that guy. I think I heard you say that there hasn't been a champion for labor and education in the legislature. What have they been getting wrong? What What is the most well, palpable evidence that they've been screwing it up? When it comes to higher education, oh, sorry, Jefferson, go ahead. No, no, you can answer the question, but not only higher education, but in specific, well, in general education, where where have been the failures? Where has been the lack of advocacy? Who's failed most? Well, I think there have been leaders on education. I mean, if you look at the 2019 uh, session, a lot of folks fought for a really long time to get the Student Success Act passed. Uh, The Student Success Act included no money for higher education. So for higher education specifically, Got it. what I'd say is that there hasn't been anyone uh, who's been able to get improved funding across the table for higher education, which has been going downhill since basically Measure 5 was passed in 1990, and the state needed to uh, backfill K-12 through education because of the way that that changed the property tax system and how it changed how funding has been allocated uh, up through the local government to the state, back to the local government for schools. Since then, student tuition has, uh, for undergraduate resident students, has gone from 
being a, a situation where the students paid less than a third of the cost of their own education to more than two thirds. And so higher education is, is increasingly unaffordable for students. And even when the economy is doing well, there isn't a lot of energy in the building to change that situation. How come? Why I do think you think? That's how, why for do you a variety think, of reasons? Yeah, what are you think the most important reasons why higher education ends up taking a back seat to everything else and doesn't become a funding priority? I, I think there's been a a lack of trust uh, since since at least 2013 when the Oregon University system was uh, broken up between the legislature and the universities. I think that is due in part to a perceived lack of transparency uh, from the universities, uh, questions about priorities. You see what happened with the uh, uh, firing of uh, President Shoreshi at, at PSU and, and how there was a buyout of almost a million dollars. All the highest paid employees in the entire state of Oregon work at our universities governor makes $100,000 a year, presidents of the universities make four hundred, five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred thousand $700,000 a year. I think that, I think that, that perception makes it very difficult for legislators to justify investing in higher education. And I think, I think that's, that's a real thing. And it's something that uh, the legislature needs to get their arms around. But I also think that there needs to be an established relationship of trust between the universities and their boards and the legislature in order for the legislature to feel comfortable investing. You served on the Higher Education Coordination Commission, uh, Coordinating Commission, excuse me. That's, I, that's my friend Ben Cannon over there, right? That's right. What did you He's learn? a very capable leader. No, it's fantastic, dude. The... Where do you think the financing mechanism is for education? Because there have been rumblings, obviously. People have been concerned about this, complaining about this for a long time. And the and, and now it does feel at least two things have changed. One is that higher education seems like it might be changing. Maybe it needs to change. It's gotten so expensive for so many people. State schools are still, rel- still pretty affordable relative to private schools. But one thing, it does seem like maybe the education landscape is changing. But the other is now we're in the middle of the global pandemic. We're not going to get in the same room together. And we might have funding priorities just to heck keep the country and keep our states together. What has changed in the landscape of Oregon or the world that might impact your prioritization or how you would approach your higher education priority? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. This is a this is a new landscape for for a lot of things, um, but higher education is certainly one of them. And with this forced remote learning, uh, it's unclear whether or not the status quo is something that it even makes sense to return to. At the same time, uh, as I talk to my faculty uh, colleagues at the university, we're finding that uh, a sense of place is really important to people in in this time when we're all forced to be apart. And uh, for Portland State in, uh, in particular, what they're seeing is they're not seeing a significant softening of enrollment, which you might expect to see. Uh, in, in times where the country is in uh, economic turmoil or during downturns, the tendency is for there to be an increased level of participation at universities because people, you know, they can't find work. Uh, in this case, they, we don't want people to really be looking for work. 
so they go back to school. Uh, and we'll expect that that will probably be the case here as well. Now, under under current circumstances, theoretically, you could go back to school anyway, since it's all remote learning anyway. But I do think that what we've observed is that students are going to go back to school at, at a place that's familiar to them. And Portland State in particular is a, is a school that uh, attracts people from around the Portland metro area, primarily anyway. But for other schools in the state, I think there will be a lot of pressure on them. Uh, and yeah, I think that there, there could be changes to higher education, potentially to consol a consolidation uh, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on the smaller regional schools as a result of this. But education is the ladder to opportunity, and we're going to want to make sure that everyone in the state of Oregon who wants to get an a, affordable, high-quality education can do that. And if we continue to disinvest, it's hard to see how that's going to happen. The legislature, I think, as you enter it, if you win the Democratic primary, you'll likely then win the general and you'll go to the legislature. And I suspect, feel free to disagree with me if you, if I miss my guess here, but I think the thing that's going to dominate the session, the next probably three sessions, is going to be the state budget. That there's yeah. going to be a, just an evisceration of revenue coming into the state with a lot of long tail obligations and a lot of fixed costs. The biggest share of that being personnel costs, including contracts with, most importantly, contracts with the unionized workforce. How would you think through addressing that budget, at least challenge, maybe catastrophe? That's a great question. Uh, I did spend six years as uh, one of the five community budget advisors to the city of Portland, and I was there uh, right after... The, the last great downturn when uh, Charlie Hales introduced zero-based budgeting for the city. Uh, I, I'm, I'm familiar with the, with the budgeting in lean times, but I think you always start with your values when you budget, that the budget is a moral document, and uh, you do everything you can to protect workers and treat them fairly while minimizing the cuts to services that result from that. So, what to take uh, to take one example of of how you could do that? The state has a a work share option under unemployment insurance, where employers can reduce the amount of of hours that workers work while not laying them off and making them un uh, eligible for unemployment. Very few employers take advantage of that because in our society, unlike in, in economies in, in Europe and countries in Europe in a lot of cases, our, our whole system is, is predicated on people being entirely removed from their jobs in order to be qualified for unemployment insurance. I mean, it, it isn't really, but that's the perception. So companies just lay people off, then people don't have work, companies don't have workers when the economy returns, and it leads to this cycle of woe. And I think 
what you can do is you can treat workers respectfully when you need to when you need to make cuts to the budget and reduce hours and keep a larger number of workers available so that when the work comes back you already have the capacity within your organization we just don't we don't think that way here and I think that's we don't we don't think uh, which way thinking we don't think which way we don't think about respect for workers we don't think about keeping retiring trying to retain workers under in lean times with reduced hours it turns out that if if there's a tough job market and you come to a worker who's working 40 hours a week and you tell them we want everyone in your unit to drop to 30, 30 hours a week. That that's a conversation that those workers are gonna be willing to have with you. And under, under a lot of circumstances, particularly if they know that the job market's really tough and they're gonna have a hard time finding work, they will take that as opposed to having their position be eliminated and having their, you know, their, their coworkers' positions be eliminated because the work they, even if there's if there's you know slightly less work to do because the economy is slowed, the having workers be eliminated entirely gets you through this. It gets you into this whole cycle of cuts and 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 rehires. And let's just think about this for a second in the context of COVID. Let's say that as we gradually return to work, phase one, phase two, phase three, potentially, right? That the, the economy picks up, but let's say that in, in six months, we have another wave. Are we gonna lay all those workers off again? And then rehire them again? I mean, how much does sense does it make to, to not do a, a flexible system where hours are reduced workers if the work isn't there rather than eliminating them all together when we know that we're going to have potential issues where we need to increase and decrease capacity dynamically to deal with the fact that we may need to, to be sheltering again really appreciate you taking the time rob and thanks for putting yourself in the mix to serve the people and really appreciate having a chance to talk to you thanks again Thanks to Jeremiah, thanks to Rob for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. You can like us on Facebook. Thanks to the people who already have. If you have story ideas, again, the email address is thelocal at xray.fm. And remember to rate and review. Thanks to the 22 people who have given five-star reviews. Let's see if we can get it up to 50. We can be together while we're apart. Talk to you tomorrow. In the meantime, stay home, stay connected, and thank you, democracy. Um. <laughs>